Welcome back, everybody. Today's podcast is The Morality of the Single Variable. And I have been working my way through the different nodes of the web of sustainability. And I'm approaching the last one of nutrition. And I've been setting the context for it by trying to lay out a synergistic system. And in my past podcasts, I dealt with a great deal with ecology. And the centerpiece of ecology, I truly believe, is soil. And tried to give a little bit of a of a picture of, of the complexity of of the soil and the the gazillions of species of what what is in that ecosystem of the soil, whether we're talking about you know little critters of animals and insects or nematodes or the millions of species of bacteria and fungi, you know, and talking about the carbon cycle, carbon sequestration, you know, organic material and water. And, and, and how important animals and particularly ruminants are in maintaining and sustaining this whole system that builds soil and uh, keeps those feedback loops intact. And I spent a podcast of eating as nature's currency and I stressed, well, I dealt with trophic cascades and I, I really love that whole concept that we, we learned about the apex predator and how the hunting and the eating of that apex predator is what kept the whole system in synergy and healthy and not just kept the deer population homostasis, but actually was essential to the health of the rivers, the riparian health. And not just exploded the ecosystems there, but it's fascinating that it actually, it helped change the actual mechanical, the actual, the actual physical course of that river so that it would zigzag more and have more flooding and, and just all around that the unbelievable connection we have simply by eating things affects the entire systems. And then I had a podcast called Information Highways, where I really got down on the micro level and, you know, even molecular and just tried to talk about biome and epigenetics and soil systems and how all these, it's not just about these micro nutrients and everything small, but actually what's so much essential to all of that is the connections and the highways and the avenues of communication. And that was both important within the soils as well as in our bodies that things and nutrients and, and micro nutrients and all these things can be communicated and actually get to where they need to get. And that would have been a very natural segue into nutrition, but I sort of spiled away and I talked about the challenges of vegetable and grain growing. And the first challenge was the that it's a, an endeavor of a single variable where you are required to use the efficiency of the factory and of technology. And because you are just trying to grow that one thing, you have to take care of all the competition. And that was the main reason behind tilling. And then how tilling really has caused incredible environmental damage and that we are still to this day worldwide we're losing gazillions <laughs> or incredible amounts of you know billions and billions of cubic metric tons of soil and how that was just if anything is unsustainable that is that is probably the the, the first and foremost key to stopping the destruction of environment and then the second one was uh, the challenge was of inputs, and I made the parallel between African aid and synthetic fertilizers and the dangers of imploding the systems that exist and uh, basically exploding the highways, the information highways, and how important that appropriate inputs are, are used and how that takes an understanding of, of the ecology that's going on there. And I spent another podcast on animal welfare. And that one really was stressing, you know, what happens when we're just managing and just creating an operation that's focused on a single variable. And when that is looked at and managed towards at the detriment of other things, even if it's a really good thing and how for us, we wanted to manage for resilient genetics and that that was maybe more important than simply just having our animals comfortable. And then I had a podcast on local. And again, I 
<clears throat> was stressing how frustrating it is to to be fighting labels where you, like much of the organic or the non-GMO food that's grown is really just grown by the same companies that do everything else conventionally and they just have a little bit different inputs and at this time of year it's a true frustration you know it's turkey time and there's nothing well there's few things that annoy me more than going into a natural food store that claims to support you know, sustainable sustainability and an environment and local and farming and then you look on their shelves and they've got turkeys organic turkeys from california or some state far far away and typically those are operations where it's just a feedlot for poultry and they're just instead of feeding conventional grain they're feeding organic grain which is you know slightly better but again my point there had also been that even if you know these operations and these were doing things well and even maybe rotationally grazing you know the fact that they're coming from california like suddenly you are you've got to transport them and then you your carbon footprint just starts just climbing higher and higher and then what you miss out when you aren't supporting your your, your local agriculture and then the social ramifications that has with that and then i had a podcast on my last podcast was on pleasure and taste and how that's not just a cherry on top but how i felt that that was you know essential to the whole web of sustainability and that was very integral to the whole process and one way that we can access it whether we're um you know even if we're just a consumer and just an eater of the farmer's food And from there, I had planned on, you know, I had been building all this, basically like a puzzle, right? All these, put all these puzzle pieces and at the center there was going to be this empty negative space with one last puzzle piece. And I was just going to push that puzzle piece in and say, ta-da! And I was planning on talking about the connection I see between taste and nutrient density and how I do think we, we have evolved um, to recognize nutrient density through our taste buds. And that when things taste good, that, that is a key sign for us that uh, there's this is a nutritious nutritious food with of course some some dangers of sugar and whatnot and then from there i was going to go into you know how important it was to, to get that nutrient density you know we have to have the you know animals are needed in order to keep those communications highway community you know those information highways intact and then get into some of the science you know to, to back it up but as i was talking and i was trying to to organize my thoughts i just felt like i was back in that same old debate where you you know maybe you got this vegetarian arguing against an omnivore or a carnivore or whatever you know and and one person Person's throwing their science, you know, data out here, and this one's doing their research there, and it just felt like an old, tired argument, and that I didn't feel like I was bringing anything fresh. And it's it's frustrating because so much of that science is just bogus. So much of it is. Uh, it seems like over ninety percent of nutritional science is simply epidemiology data that people take and they just twist and warp and get that data to say whatever the hell they want it to say. And it may be worth taking a podcast or some time to uh, explore the people that I think have done a really good job of sifting through all that crap and saying this is actually this little bit over here is actually worth listening to and the rest of this was just basically you know some ideology or whatnot and that may be worth it but I felt like that's not my strength Maybe I can get to that eventually, but when I just, I needed a fresh way to talk about this, uh, I didn't feel like I fell into an old, tired debate. And so I thought I would do sort of a philosophical trick. Well, it's not really a trick, you know, it's a, it's an exercise. In, and I felt like it was going to allow me to approach things fresh and be able to talk things about things in a way that um, are meaningful. And for me, I think one of my strengths is that I, I like to explore how people think and how the way we think about things and how that affects our conclusions, basically, and, and, and how we arrive at what we think is, is the right thing. And so that got me thinking about, 
issues, uh, moral issues. And I touched on this in the um, last podcast with uh, with pleasure and how when we have really super complex moral issues, it's hard to know what the answer is when we don't have a very visceral connection to it. And this is because the complexity of our global system these days makes moral issues very tricky. And you have to have a rational component to just understand them. And so much of the atrocities that happen, whether it's to people or to environment or or whatever's going on, they're just buried under layers and layers of systems. They're buried under layers of bureaucracy. They're buried under layers of government. They're buried under, and this is maybe the worst, they're buried under the machinations of multi you know, national corporations, you know, whose their supply chains traverse, you know, all over the globe and and affect things at these huge levels, right? Because we're dealing with such high numbers of, of people to feed or, or whatnot, and it just becomes, it has incredible effect, and yet they're buried behind all these these layers and layers of systems, and I think of immediately of Coltrane because, you know, I grew up in the Congo and that's a rare mineral that is mined in northern Congo, but that we have in all our electronics. And specifically, we have them in our cell phones. And it's a classic example of where, you know, what is our, our visceral connection to cell phones? Well, it's we have good connotations with it, right? We have good emotional connotations with it. And that's, you know, whether it's keeping in touch with people or whether it's like for your for your work, you know, now it's like essential to have cell phones and to be communicating like that. And so, you know, from just the plain visceral reaction to it, it's like, what's wrong with cell phones, right? And so you have to do this real rational thing of, like, of trying to... F- to, to follow backwards the supply chains, right? So we've got a failed government in, in the Congo, and so there's these these mines, and you know, and after the the big basically African World War, where the the Rwandas had pushed their gen you know, they had pushed the genocide out of their country and then all these different countries got involved in fighting. Well, Rwanda got control, a great deal of control of the mines there, and then they started exporting Coltrane. But it's the the people who are actually controlling the the territories there are like are, are warlords. They're trading Coltrane for, you know, whether it's money or whether it's AK-47s or whether it's drugs, you know, and then they can go out and and get these nine-year-old kids and get them addicted to drugs and then stick an AK-47 in their hand and suddenly they have these young conscripted child soldiers and then it's a land of utter horror where you know rape is just a normal thing and and child soldiers is just common as can be and everyone's fighting over these territories because there's so much money involved and there's these horrible things going on and they are connected if you follow the dots long enough you see how they're connected to the cell phone right and we're all complicit we're all you know on our cell phones or whatnot and yet so it's so hard to like oh yeah we have to like you know, use our brains and rational to remind ourselves that, yeah, you know, there is a kind of a really dark something underneath it all about these things that we use for great good. Or oil, right? Oil is the classic one, right? We're all using cars and what's what's the emotional and visceral connection with cars? Well, it's to get to where we need, you know, whether you're using it to visit people, whether you're using it for your work. And yet we know that oil causes all kinds of wars. It causes all kinds of, of fighting and, you know, and it causes environmental degradation or water or, or plastic or, you know, all these things and where the, the visceral connection, it just seems harmless at at worst and really good, you know, in, in other cases. And nutrition, though, happens to be the opposite of that. So nutrition is very visceral. And and that's why you get these debates that are so heated and you get, I mean, if you go on social media and you just see the people are just fighting each other tooth and nail and saying the most god-awful nasty things to each other. And it's 
because we're wired that way, because that's something that is visceral for us, both literal and figurative. We're putting this food in our systems, and it affects us directly. Many times we slip onto the other side, <laughs> you know, we fall off the other side of the precipice of being completely irrational. And so I thought I would do sort of a thought experiment. And this way I felt like from the thought experiment, I could switch it from being a visceral issue to a rational issue, and then maybe I could explore it some more. So this is the thought experiment that I, I figured I would try. Is, um, and it would, again, be emphasizing a single variable in isolation, you know, where you emphasize it to the detriment of everything else. Well, naturally, I believe that meat is is super nutritious and is essential to our diet. In fact, I, I push back against even people like Perlmutter and stuff. And I don't think it's just a condiment. I think it needs to be the centerpiece. I think nutritionally, the science backs that up. But having said that, to do a thought experiment, I thought, what if the case was the opposite? Let's say... There was some more mechanism, and I don't care, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It, the case was that in reality, we were a funny species that, that if we just ate vegetarian and did not eat meat, that we would actually live longer. Maybe we could measure it some. Maybe you'd live two, three years longer typically than the average person, and maybe you would get sick less often. So maybe instead of getting sick once a year, you got sick you know, once every two years or three years or whatever. You know, right? Some sort of measurable thing, really not so important to me, but the specifics of that. But let's do the thought experiment that the opposite of what I think is true is actually reality, that a vegetarian diet without any meat or even a vegan diet was actually healthier for you. Then I would ask a different question, right? Because now I've switched it from a visceral issue to a rational one. And the question I would ask is a very rational one is, if it was better for us, would we still have a moral imperative to eat meat because of all the other issues, the whole synergistic system that I've been, been working at? And so I wanted to explore, explore that question. So there are a couple ways I see could be argued that we could actually be sustainable with a vegan or, or vegetarian diet. And one would, would be to, you know, remain in that sort of schizophrenic and dichotomy of, you know, humans versus the wild and, and basically have this idea that the wild animals would offset it, offset our damage to the environment. And, you know, maybe there was a time in the past, you know, hundreds of years ago when there would have been enough buffalo and springbuck and wildebeest, you know, all kinds of different, um, there were just massive herds of all kinds of different animals that were basically feedback loops that were intact, that were improving the soil and building soil. And this is true of all kinds of animals, not just the ruminants. You know, I, I think of not too far from here is the Outer Banks and, you know, it wasn't just not even a century ago, where there used to be millions and millions of waterfowl and ducks there. And they basically got all hunted for restaurants and stuff. And and there could be an argument that we, we begin to have enough conservation uh, laws and whatnot that we can increase the, the numbers of wild animals. And that would basically, you know, I just don't see how we would ever get enough to offset the amount of, of tilling and damage we would do by by growing all the grain and vegetables that we do. And I don't think there's enough space either. We would never give the buffalo, you know, the area that they used to roam, you know, used to be all over North America, um, well over half of the continent. And even if we did, we've destroyed the fertility of, of their natural habit. Tat so bad that they probably it couldn't probably even support them. They just the soils won't even grow enough biomass, and the systems have been so long out of production that it would take a, a great it would take a long time to actually get the fertility of of our land back to where it used to be to enable to support those kinds of of populations. So not only. Do they not have you know we wouldn't have these nutrient cycles intact. You know, except in the wild, but 
I think that simply if we have this dichotomy and we're like, and you know, human versus wild are simply, we're just too big now. You know, that might have worked at some point when there was enough wild to compensate for us. But now our population is just so ginormous that we just have such an incredible effect on the planet. I just don't see how that that could ever work out. So another argument I think that a little bit more nuanced and that I've heard a number of times is that we um, simply need to switch the grain that we grow from animal from feeding animals to humans, and that's basically you know a, an argument of efficiency. You know, you say, oh, well, it's taking like three, four, or five pounds of grain in order to convert to one pound of meat. You know, isn't that a waste? And so let's just take out that feedback loop and let's get that directly into the people and then we would be using less land. So not only is that just simply an argument of mitigation where we're using that land to feed people directly at a supposedly more efficient rate, but I actually don't think that holds up. First and foremost, I mean, I think there's a few, a couple kind of false premises there, but before we even get into that, simply because of our cultural, whatever it is, we as humans are basically nutrient dead ends. So because we do not, we have separated ourselves so much from nature, we are a nutrient dead end and we don't, we do not participate in cycling back our nutrients. We treat our manure as waste. And the only way that could even begin to hope to make it possible to grow enough vegetables and grain for humans without the inputs of animal and their manure would be as if we kept our nutrient cycle intact because we would be the last domesticated animal, really. But I just don't see how we would ever get there, at least in the foreseeable future. It's just, there doesn't seem to be the, the even, <laughs> not just not the political will, but we just don't even have the awareness that we have turned our own, our own nutrient cycling into a, basically a waste product and a pollutant and something to be dealt with. Even that's, you know, I don't think that would be wise because we were just being dependent on only one feedback loop. And you know how nature is. She's always throwing in monkey wrenches into things. And if you don't have uh, a diversity and a multiple feedback loops to be resilient and to fall back on, um, something might happen and some diseases might go crazy. And if you're just dependent on one feedback loop, that would be very dangerous. But I think it also falls apart in other ways too. And it's this efficiency, right? This is a very, the idea of taking away feedback loops in order to get a, a better efficiency so that we can get the grain directly to humans is basically a very simple linear mathematical equation, which is very dangerous, I think, anytime we're talking about ecology. And I think... Um, I have argued before that the more feedback loops you have, then nature tends to be more resilient and she tends to, you know, her aspect of abundance is, is being supported. But if we're going to get to the argument of efficiency, I think this is where nutritionally we know that this is, this is false. So these are, it's kind of that a false premise that we're actually better converters of grain and of vegetables, which we aren't. Um, it's very clear from our guts. It's very clear from what we use and, and, and what our, how we digest things. Um, we are not ruminants. We are not um, using all kinds of fermentation in order to ferment cellulose and then eating the bacteria. We, we're a system of putrefaction, which affects nutrition um, very much so on, on the sort of micronutrients. All right. If we if we re, if we stick with sort of a macronutrient idea of calories in, calories out, the simple mathematical equation, we are never gonna actually address any real issues. I think that's just a really naive 
way to go about it. But when we get into the micronutrients, and I'm thinking primarily of, of vitamins, suddenly we, we, we see a different picture. And remember, I'm trying to address efficiency here, right? So we, we tend to say, oh yeah, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin B, all these things, and we kind of lump them all together. But it's essential for nutrition to understand that often, it's most often the case that plants have a different form of these vitamins than animals do, and particularly humans. If we're talking about vitamin D, which is essential, you have, you know, we lump that all together, but there's different kinds, right? So vitamin D3 is the one that we as human animals use and need mostly, and then plants tend to make and use vitamin D2. Now this can be converted, right? And this is always the argument of the, the vegan or vegetarian that yeah, we'll, we'll get vitamin two and then we can convert it to vitamin three. Or same thing as like with uh, the vitamin K1 and K2, right? The K1 is the plant form and the K2 is the, is the human form. And we use a little bit of K1, but we mostly need K2. And we can convert K1 to K2. But in almost all these cases, these conversion rates are not great. In fact, they oftentimes much worse than, you know, that three or four or five pounds of grain to one, right? The vitamin A is a perfect example of this, and people have been called out on this, and so I know there's literature out on this um, and studies that actually been done, right? So there's, there's vitamin A, the complete vitamin A called retinol that we use as human animals, and then plants have uh, beta-carotene, which is a precursor to vitamin A, right? So there were some arguments about, hey, we can get all the vitamin A we need from broccoli and yeah, look how much vitamin A, but it was just a half truth because it has a lot of beta, beta carotene, which is only a precursor to vitamin A. So we actually have to eat quite a bit of that broccoli in order to convert it. So now if you're talking about a very healthy human being, right, who has all the enzymes and has all the informational highways intact, all the converting systems going you know, well and working at top, top notch, and they're eating enough uh, fat because, of course, these vitamins are fat-soluble. So all these things in place, you're going to get a conversion rate of somewhere around 5 to 1. So you get 5 to 1 beta-carotene to vitamin, you know, one true vitamin A. And that's in a very healthy human being. Right. But of course, we're we're in America where we, you know, calories in, calories out has been the name of the game for so long. We turns out that we are well overfed, but we're malnourished. And so most of our systems, you know, the, the average person is, you know, over half of, of the people in, in, in the U.S. are unhealthy, right? And their systems aren't working properly. So they did studies where, you know, if, if this person's kind of got some health issues, then they've, they've documented where these conversion rates begin to be as, you know, 20 or, or more. It takes 20 units of beta-carotene to make one unit of vitamin A. And suddenly you just can't make these conversions fast enough. And you'd be having to eat just boatloads of, of, of broccoli just to get your vitamin A, right? Versus if you eat some liver, it's in a form that's, that's ready and available for you, and your body just sucks it up and can just use it as is. And so all that to say is that a, a vegan diet is actually not that efficient to get us uh, nutrients, and particularly the micronutrients that we need. And it seems kind of silly that we wouldn't opt for the food that was quite a bit more nutritionally dense and had all, all the micronutrients available in the forms that we need them if they had been part of a feedback loop that actually ameliorated the environment around them. But I think you also run into another problem when you start eating more and more vegetables because we forget that when you eat vegetables and grains, we always eat them at a price. And this is because plants are, you know, they say plants are the nature's original chemists, right? And in general, plants do not want to be eaten. 
And so they have all kinds of chemicals to, to stop you from eating them, particularly in their seeds. And for well over 99% of you know, plant species, we can't, they're not even edible. They, you know, they're poisonous or they just, we can't even get the nutrients from them right because of our, our gut and how they are but the ones that are always come with a price there are thousands and thousands of, of phyto um, phytochemicals you know in the plants that are, are doing their best to keep you from eating them so that they can continue to propagate through their seeds or or whatnot right so you have seeds that have you know phytic acids and they bind to your minerals and you know it stops absorption you know you have isoflavins you have phytoestrogens you know and these you know that can totally mess with your body they can screw with your hormones um, you know, and these things are all defenses. I, I think the, the phytoestrogens are antifungus, you know, or you have the lectins, which are like pesticides in, in seeds. They just, these things aren't easily digestible for us. You know, or you have the nightshades, you know, with their glycoalkaloids. You have spinach and things like that with oxalates, with the crystals. You have your brassicas, well, sulforaphane, right? And which, you know, if you've listened to Rhonda Patrick, you'll know about sulforaphanes and, and they're toted as a, an immune booster. And which I'm sure is true, but we have to remember what is the mechanism going on. It's basically a stress on our systems, right? And maybe it's a very appropriate stress. So you eat some sulforaphane, there's an immune response. There's a rise of glutathione that happens, you know, and this is to go take care of this thing that we've put inside our body that's seen as a foreign thing that's going to be detrimental. So we had an immune response. So we have to remember that it may be appropriate to eat a certain amount of these plants, but they all come with stressors and they may very well be appropriate amount of stress and then you know but they're working like a vaccine in a sense you know they you you, you get a little bit of the the poison so that your uh, your immune system you know stays sharp and, and is exercised and works against it and you have these you know responses like glutathione but if you start taking them in quantities that are abnormal and not really meant to be eaten in the quantities that we are, then suddenly we find ourselves having all kinds of side effects. And particularly if you're already not that healthy and suddenly you're ramping up different kinds of vegetables and grains that you may have a negative reaction to or you may even have an autoimmune response to, suddenly you're running into to trouble. But I veered away now from the efficiency argument, and I want to get back to that because I think there's a second part in there that with uh, sort of a half-truth and a, a, a false premise, and I think it really reflects a misunderstanding of how animals have been detrimental to the environment and what part uh, they have played if they're mismanaged. So the idea that you've, you've switched to human consumption of, of the grains that are grown and suddenly think that you've done an environment uh, a bonus is to actually think place the onus on the animal itself that has done the negative impact of on the environment. I think what happens it's very similar. I, I draw a parallel to that of oil and how we've looked at oil. So you know the big things that hit the news are like some big oil spill. You know, maybe it's out in the ocean, maybe it's on some, you know, land and it's just gotten into all, it just gets into the ecosystem. And it really is a god-awful atrocity and it gets a lot of attention. But these things actually can be cleaned up and they also, you could have better management and you could have, you know, regulations and whatnot. And typically, if things are working right, you know, there is a penalty and they, you know, so there are incentives to not have these spills and stuff. But as much as that is a negative thing and, and, and a really bad atrocity for the environment, that's actually not the true damage that oil does. 
right? We're getting back into those systems and things. It's that quotidian use. It's that regular, daily, systematic use of it and multiply that by billions of people. So now we have all our energy or most of our energy based on, on this oil because it's so convenient, such a good source of energy. And now we have cars and they're all emitting things. And then we build roads and we, you know, all the gazillion things that spin off of having such a supply of oil. Regardless that it's not a, it's a non-renewable source, it's just been so available and so powerful, we've built an entire civilization on it. And so it's the regular daily stuff that is actually the true environmental impact that has a much greater impact than the occasional oil spill. And I think this is also the same way that we're looked that gets looked at at animals, right? So we're not too far from North Carolina, and there's a lot of huge hog farms around here. And like a year or two ago, we had some floods, right? And they, these are those big CAFOs, confinement animal feeding operations, where they've got tens of thousands of hogs, you know, in these buildings, and then all their manure is is sprayed and gathered into this big lagoon, right? And there are all kinds of regulations about this, but in this big floods, there were several of them that spilled over. And then this nastiness just just gets into the rivers, it gets into everything. And it really is another atrocity. It's like an oil spill. And it causes all kinds of damage and it causes all kinds of problems. But Again, this is something that even could be fixed. And in fact, a lot of they're coming up with projects to, to take that manure and process it some way, somehow, and for it to become a, you know, a nutrient available and fertilizer to be put back on the field. There's people who are trying to trap the gas and make methane out of it and use it as energy. So there are ways to regulate this and, and to, to use it in ways that you could kind of keep it under control. And it turns out that as bad as it is, is for those lagoons to flood out, that is not actually what is the true atrocity and the true damage that those operations do. The true damage that those operations do is that they are tied to all that grain growing. It is the vegetarian diet that is grown for these animals that are causing the quotidian and regular depletion of the soil. Right? So you get what I'm saying? It it's the grain that's being grown for all these animals in unsustainable ways that's really the damage. It's not the animals themselves. It's only that we've concentrated them so hard and then we have these in these lagoons and then you might have cut some corners and so these lagoons get out of control that you have this occasional spill and this occasional atrocity that happens. You know, it's not the animals themselves. It's that systemic thing, that thing that you have to dig a little deeper with your rational mind and understand it's actually the grain that we grow is the true detrimental impact on the environment. The grain that we grow, the vegetarian diet that we grow for these animals that are causing the problems. And to say that, oh, we're just going to switch it over to human consumption and then that's going to be have a, a positive environment, environmental impact is to not truly understand what, why those animals and those confinement operations, what their real impact, what the true impact of them is. And on top of that, if we remember that humans are a nutrient dead end, there's an argument to say, yeah, well, we should, even if the animals are in a confinement, even if they have lagoons, at least some of those operations are going to take all those nutrients in those lagoons and they're going to do some sort of process to them and actually get those nutrients back into the soil. Whereas you can't say that for if we're sending them through, you know, humans, because in this great civilized world, we are a nutrient dead end and we not only turn our manure to, you know, we don't only not put it back into the soil, but we, it becomes a waste product and, and a pollutant and something that has to be deal, dealt with either in, you know, water sanitation systems or it just gets flushed straight down into the rivers and the waterways into the oceans. But I'd like to change gears a little bit more because I, there's another issue that kind of gets woven into all these other ones. 
and it's an issue that I find very interesting, and I kind of walked into it naively when I came from growing up overseas and, and in the Congo and then and coming here, and that's that of taking life. So there's many people that they just don't really care all the things that you say about the environment and they don't really care about, you know, the science of this or that. Ultimately, it gets down to they just can't handle the idea of animals being killed. And so they have this idea that growing vegetables, you're not killing things, which is pretty ironic, um, if not just frustrating and and downright insane, right? And the typical answer I've heard from this is that, oh yeah, but when you're uh, harvesting vegetables and harvesting grain, there's all kinds of, you know, habitat that's been destroyed and, you know, for birds and you get lots of mice that get caught up in the harvesters and they get killed. And that's just not satisfying to me. It's true. There are plenty of little animals that get killed that way and stuff, but that remains in the realm of mathematical equations or so. Then you have to figure out, well, how many hundreds of mice and birds that get caught up in the harvesters equals one cow to feed whatever. And I think that misses the true problem going on. We have to remember that vegetable and grain growing is an operation of a single variable, right? You have to eliminate the, the competition, and this happens in, you know, in those Midwest fields of thousands and thousands of acres, they're tilling vast areas of, of, and it's hard to even comprehend. But for the average Joe Schmo, they know about this in their garden, right? Anyone who's tried to have a garden to just constantly having to weed and you have to make decisions. Am I going to take the labor and the time to physically weed these things? Am I going to hack at them and sort of hoe? Am I going to use chemicals and sprays. You know, for me, I always want to bring it back to the systems again. Typically, what is done in order to take care of all the competition in these massive operations or in your small little garden is you till. You take that grass and that pasture right there and you just got to get rid of all that and you just turn it all up and you basically destroy that whole ecosystem there. Maybe not completely, but you set it way back. And, you know, you could, I guess, make some sort of argument of, you know, five million nematodes die and, you know, thousands of worms and thousands of this and that and the other. But that's still not really the issue. You're, you're destroying a system. And typically, then you plant your, your stuff. And then these are monocrops, right? And so they all become susceptible to things like parasites. Even think of your, you know, your garden, right? You get your tomato caterpillars, you get your potato beetles, you get your your cabbage loopers, you get your flea beetles, you know, or if you're grain, you get boring beetles. Or say you get diseases, some kind of, you know, fungus disease or virus or whatnot. So not only have you now destroyed the soil, you've taken that pasture and you've plowed it up and you've basically set back that system down to 10% of what it was. And you've you've destroyed and, and killed like millions of, of species, whether they're worms or nematodes, bacteria or fungus. But then you start having problems because you're monocrop and you start having parasites or diseases and then you have to start to apply killers. I'm talking about pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and just because you're organic doesn't mean you, use, you don't use killers. 99% of organic is basically going to substitute uh, the conventional one. So you maybe instead of atrazine or the glyphosate, the Roundup or the chlorpyrifos or, you know, these chemically factory derived things, now they're going to substitute the killers with biologically derived ones. So maybe you're using extract of the pyrethium plant or, or extract of neem oil. Maybe you're using an insect uh, virus or BT tea or whatever it is. These are, and they're advertised as very effective. And you have to go a long way and, and look for a long way to find the very few organic, and they're much beyond organic, really is what they are, of operations that are dealing and treating their soil good enough so that they hardly sp spray at all. But those are very few and far between. 
the vast, vast majority are just these conventional farms that are also growing organic. And basically what they've done is they've changed the inputs and they're just using, a, they've mitigated and used a little less harmful killers, basically. So at this point, you can forget about any of the sequestration of, of carbon that happens with Michael Rizzo. You can forget about, you know, all kinds of systems within the soils that are, are supporting and making it better. And this, this is, it's dumbfounding because I, I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say it so that people, I'm going to say the obvious, but we as a perennial permaculture pasture where we raise our animals we have no incentive and we do not spray anything we have never sprayed an herbicide pesticide or fungicide on our field i mean there's no reason to because we're tapping into that whole synergistic system of ecology of nature of the abundance of species so in the perennial pasture if you have a plant that becomes susceptible to a disease or an insect there's a hundred other species that are ready to just fill in that niche and take over and you're basically what you're counting on is the diversity you're counting on you know the redundancy right and in all in these most of these plants have been here for a good long while you know they're local they've evolved with the climate here and therefore they're they're good and resistant to a lot of these things but regardless you have such an enormous variety of species and whatnot that it's going to fill in so there is no incentive for us to spray anything So for a consumer, if you're concerned about toxins in your food, what you have to be concerned about is the vegetables and the grain that's growing. Because for an operation like ours, the only toxins that could come in is from the grain that we bring in to feed the animals that are not purely ruminants. And we try to source from a good source that tries to do less spraying because they try to keep their soils doing well. But for the animal that's the most vilified by the vegetarians because of methane or some, the, the ruminants, the cows and the sheep, they're actually eating only pasture. And in our pasture, there is absolutely nothing on there, there is no herbicide, no pesticide, no fungicide, right? They are eating a diet that's free from all that. And of course, they're not confined. We have no need to give them antibiotics and we don't give them hormones. So this whole idea that you want clean food, well, you cannot find cleaner food from something that's been rotationally grazed on a pasture, right? And I, I get frustrated with this because if you ask the average person what permaculture culture is, what gets conveyed in their head is a vegetable farm and one that's trying to do a good job, right? So they have, they try to plant some perennials and they want to get a variety of species, you know, maybe they've done the three sisters, they've got the corn to support the beans and they're growing squash and, you know, and we're like applauding them because they have three species. I mean, yes, three species, but just look at it from the perspective of us grazers, right? I mean, great. It's not a monocrop, but we've got hundreds and hundreds of species out there. And I'm, I don't want to belitt belittle that because if you're doing a garden and you're growing those vegetables, absolutely think permaculture, think perennial, think these things. But the fact that they don't recognize that we are the ultimate permaculture. We are the ultimate permaculture. We are the ultimate perennial crop where we don't have to spray anything and it's being managed, it's being conditioned by these animals. We're actually what they're trying to imitate. But if you ask the average person what permaculture is, they're going to conjure in their, their mind an image of a nice garden. And that has got to be switched around. We have got to dethrone this idea that vegetables are the environmental pinnacle. And also uh, bring this back to killing. To grow these grains, to grow these, these vegetables, somehow we think of it as just automatically environmental bonus. But you have to work your ass off to grow these things and not be depleting the soil. You have to go above and beyond any normal thing and above and beyond the regular organic to actually make sure that your soil is improving and not. Whereas these animals in a permaculture pasture and managed right are just doing it because that's how they thrive thrive.
And this brings me back to, to what we've discussed before when I was talking about trophic cascades. It's a beautiful thing because we are the apex predator. And in eating as an apex predator, as an eating and yes, killing those animals, we're actually maintaining the health of the system. Okay, we're not wolves and, and the ungulates and the rivers, but for us, we are the humans, the apex predator, and we eat the animals, and then we are helping the health of the soil of a rotationally grazed farm. This idea that we shouldn't kill anything, it's basically, you know, to simplify it, you can kill an animal or you can kill the life of the of the soil. You can kill basically the life of ecosystems, you, you know, and that's just such a backwards, almost Orwellian thing. So if we could just switch around people's ideas of what is the true perennial permaculture and we get into animals so right so originally this was and maybe i've lost my way some but originally this was a thought experiment about what if there was some mechanism that actually nutritionally a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet was better for us and hopefully it's kind of self-explanatory that after I've gone through all these things, whether we're ecological well, predominantly ecological, there's a local and a social element to this. Local, again, ties back to environment because you have that carbon footprint, you know, you're using up oil for transportation. But in each case, maybe if it was better for us, suppose we had that extra couple years on average of life and we were sick less. I think there's quite an argument to say, well, even so, we should really be eating meat from well-sourced places because what else is going to keep that soil healthy? What else is going to keep these nutrient cycles intact? Because we're not doing it as humans. What else is going to keep building soil? Keep sequestering water, sequestering carbon, increasing organic material. Because the soil is the life, basically. The, that, that's the part of the earth that is keeping us alive. And if we don't keep that alive, it's not going to matter if you're eating a vegetable diet or not. There's just not going to be enough soil to support vegetable or animal. So I think in the end, we have to really understand long term that if we're going to keep nutrient cycles going, if we're going to continue rather than this depletion of soils, that we have to keep animals in. And this is so relevant to today because there's even a presidential hopeful candidate. I think it's Cory Booker, very intelligent guy. He seems very articulate, but in the end he's vegan and he's been known to say that meat eaters, your days are numbered. Or if the Green New Deal was hijacked by vegans and they had, you know, some sort of injunction, you were not allowed to eat meat, this would have unbelievable impact on our nation. This whole thing we've been turning, we have taken, if you look at statistics, we have furthered the desertification of our country at faster rates than most any other country. And basically, if we go vegan, we make the law of land, not only would you have to kill the millions and millions of livestock that are already here, you know, and get rid of all of those, but you would pretty much complete this absurd operation that we've begun of, of turning this place into a desert. And we wouldn't be the only civilization that's done that. They did that in the Middle East. They're doing it in China. They've, this is the curse of the plow. And this is the curse of, of agriculture that's not paying attention to soil. And if we don't wake up soon, regardless of nutrition, we're going to be in trouble. Thankfully, though, I think that it's all synergistic. And I think it's a win-win situation. I think there's an incredible case for the fact that not only are toxins not in your food, but actually the nutrient density of meat and the incredible benefits you get make it such that we can be improving the soil and keeping the ecology intact, all while eating incredibly delicious and nutrient-dense food. So I think I'll leave it at that. Thanks for bearing with me, and I appreciate you all listening. Till the next time. Bye.